Sponsor Collide is an endpoint security solution that helps your end users solve their security problems themselves. They get smarter about security and you get more compliant computing. Find out more at collide.com slash day two cloud. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day two cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we are talking to Johannes Dienst, a developer advocate at Ask UI. But we're not going to be talking about Ask UI that much. We're going to be talking about a previous project where he was on a DevOps team that was deploying infrastructure as code and applications eventually on AWS. But they ran into a lot of challenges, didn't they, Ethan? Lots of challenges. Some challenges related to scaling, some challenges related to the different environments that they needed to support. Some challenges related to uniqueness and how they were going to store certain of the artifacts. And then we get into a pretty lengthy part of the conversation about how that big monorepo got broken up. Right. And all the different pipelines and how they sort of orchestrated now having multiple repos. So I found it a fascinating conversation. I hope you will, too, with our guest, Johannes Dienst, developer advocate at AskUI. Hey, welcome to the show, Johannes. Why don't you tell the good folks out there a little bit about yourself and what you do? Hello, I'm Johannes. I work at Asio as a developer advocate, as Ned already said. Uh, yeah, I'm a traveler of, of IT at the moment. Uh, been in the industry for about 10 and a half years now. Oh, already, already <laughs> since 2012. It's been a long time. And I'm interested in everything uh, that relates to good software. So building good software, software quality in all kinds of ways, uh, giving talks, sharing knowledge. So learning, learning is uh, a big thing for me. Learning is key. And uh, you know, it's funny you say it's been a long time. I mean, a decade is a long time, but I know in IT, a decade is more like 30 or 40 years in real time, right? You're just constantly being bombarded with new information and new ways of doing things. And I think that's, that's very germane to the discussion today. Um, I mentioned your developer advocate at Ask UI, but I'm going to rewind time a little bit because what first attracted to uh, us to having you on the show was that you were on a DevOps team at an IT provider, and you had some really interesting experiences there. So can you set the stage for me? Uh, what was your team working on at that IT provider? So we worked on a really, really boring software, like... <laughs> like a content management system. Um, our product owner always said, yeah, we are, we are kind of a bucket, put data in there, get it out. So uh, the general strategy was to not put content in there over a GUI, but over an API. Uh, we had this API gateway, which were, is like a service gateway for whole Japan. That's uh, the team we were, we're in. And then you can say, um, put every data over the API gateway into our content management system and then get it out. That That's basically the idea behind the product. Okay. And you had, uh, who were you, who were your clients that were leveraging this content management system? So Deutsche Bahn is more or less like an uh, ecosystem of itself. So our customers were subsidiaries of Deutsche Bahn, you have to think of Deutsche Bahn not as a one big company with 300,000 employees, but of a company, like a, a head company. And then there are a lot of subsidiaries like 427. It's changing all the time because there are some uh, subsidiaries sold or bought. 
and all these subsidiaries were our customers. So you just said 300,000. Possible customer, customers, I have to say. Possible. <laughs> not, not all of them were customers. <laughs> right. So how, how did you service those customers? Were you just supplying them with software that they would run on their own? Or were you, it was more like a SaaS offering? It's a SaaS offering. That's the general strategy uh, now. So we are deploying the content management system and providing also the operations. So we were a DevOps team operating from end to end. So getting customer feedback, implementing this into our content management system, and then also operating it. Okay, so with that large of a base of customers, did you have scaling challenges then? Yeah, there are scaling challenges, but not like infinitive scaling challenges. It's like a little bit, uh, you don't you don't plan for scaling challenges, uh, challenges, in my opinion, until you have them. And there's no infinite scaling in, in Deutsche Bahn because there's not uh, enough not work there, I would say. Um, but yes, at the end, we had some scaling issues. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, would you describe it as a multi-tenant environment? Did every sort of client or customer get their own individualized environments that you were running and managing for them? Or is it more of a, a combined environment that they were all using? Yeah, that, that's uh, going to the beginning of our, uh, of our journey where we said, okay, we have one big cluster customer management system and we have multiple tenants on that system. But then we found out, okay, regulation in Germany, Deutsche Bahn is, is Germany-based, then it's not so easy to uh, protect your data or even fulfill the security environments there because the security uh, requirements in Deutsche Bahn are like that. You no, everything has to be physically separated, like on threat level. We're talking about operating systems. So no, uh, okay. so the data would be in the same thread because it's running on the same cluster. So there could be, I don't know that this, there could be an occasion where some threat can read from another customer. So it, so it feels like you then would have had started with a big multi-tenant system. You moved to to be compliant, and then would have had to change your deployment strategy quite a bit. So did your your tooling change? How how were you managing it, and did you change your tooling as time went on? I have to imagine that we worked as a startup, or more kind of like a startup. So we were a team managing the system alone. Yeah, so, uh, but. There's this big uh, corporation outside of us where, where we don't have to do all the organizational stuff a normal startup has to do, like managing uh, salaries and this one. This is okay. Um, so we started out with one big system and we deployed to uh, what is, what's called uh, managed cloud. Mm. So which is basically a stripped down AWS account. And where you can deploy servers by clicking on a graphical user interface and say, okay, we need uh, two EC2 instances with this configuration. And then, okay, tie this together with a load balance. And that's where we deployed our, our content management system in the first place. And, okay, we wanted to have some kind of configuration. If, if we want to add new tenants, then, okay, we said, uh, what's there, what's out there? And we used Ansible for the configuration of our servers. Okay, so you were actually going into a graphic console and and spinning up your compute instances as needed, configuring them there, and then using Ansible to do the configuration of yeah. beyond so the operating system. Configuration is code. Right, I okay. Yeah. But that's already a big step because we were able to deploy servers on our own. So without any supervision of an operations team. So the, the 
uh, until 2018, there was this big divide, like the classical divide. There was a de development in, in Frankfurt and there was operations in Erfurt. So even physical di divide <laughs> of operations and development. And, and now we could spin up own servers. So this was already a big, big step for, for DB system. Yeah. I see. So previously you would have had to request those resources yeah, yeah, yeah. created for you. And then you would get the, the keys to log in and do your deployment and configuration. Yeah, even a configuration update of RAM, for example, you had to request and maybe it would take two, two weeks. Ooh, I need a little more memory. Nope. <laughs> two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that sounds like that was your beginning workflow. You would be able to do it through a graphical user interface, but once you had to start becoming compliant with these regulations and breaking apart that environment, did you also shift the tools you were using to deploy the, the multiple environments? Yeah, it went on for about a year. And then we noticed, okay, we have uh, more customers, like two to three we had uh, there. And we quickly noticed that <laughs> deploying servers via GUI is not really the thing to do if you want to scale and if you have multiple <laughs> if you have multiple clusters even for one customer because there's usually a dev then a test yeah. or that's a lot a of clicking Name test yeah. integration test uh, again for for the do domain domain tests and then you have production then it becomes really tedious to manage that with a graphical user interface so uh, we were allowed to go on an AWS account, a little bit stripped down AWS account because there are a lot of things in AWS which send data to America, mm. which uh, breaks the GDPR requirements. But uh, basically it was a, a full uh, account of AWS. But I forget forgot something before we tried out OpenShift. <laughs> deploy our infrastructure to OpenShift, but our product was not uh, able to run it on OpenShift, sadly, oh. sadly enough. So okay. then we moved to AWS and, and then we, we thought, okay, we are complete newbies there. So we were all skilled engineers, but hadn't touched anything cloud yet. So this was kind of new area. You have this AWS, do what you want. There wasn't, weren't even budget restrictments. So we could could spin up Kubernetes clusters on the, uh, on end all the time, mm -hmm. uh, and then we said, okay, we are complete newbies. Let's do something. The vendor vendor uh, recommends uh, use CloudFormation. So we want to deploy multiple clusters, if separated in their own virtual private private network. They're completely separated on a on a physical level. Yeah, let's do some something like CloudFormation. That's uh, what we tried. Were you using EKS on AWS or just spinning up your own Kubernetes clusters your own way? As we are very newbie, we said, okay, yeah. um, let's run it on bare bones EC2. That's what I would recommend. Um, we thought that it's easier to manage EC2 instances than a complete Kubernetes cluster mm. uh, for the time being. It, we already thought about, okay, if we can get our product containerized, then we will move to Kubernetes, uh, but let's okay, stay on okay. EC2 first and it, it, deploy it, it, our clusters there. I thought in your storyline at some point you had gotten it working on, on OpenShift. And so you were, you were in the Kubernetes ecosystem and then you, then you shifted over to, uh, to AWS, but, but no, not yet. We're not at the Kubernetes point yet. Got it. Not yet. Um, it would have been more or less like a Hail Mary thing because the, <laughs> uh, because the um, 
supplier of our uh, content management system was a bought software licensed uh, from a, from a vendor, then had one open shift expert, <laughs> which developed this, this solution and it kind of worked, but <laughs> we weren't sure if, if the developer would leave. So <laughs> yeah. You don't want mm. everything relying on that one person with yeah, all yeah, the yeah, it's some kind of yeah. mm, no, let's manage it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I had a similar experience when I was deploying a healthcare application and there was one person on the vendor team who decided they really liked Puppet. And so they had changed over the deployment process to Puppet only. And then they left. <laughs> and trying to get support from the vendor on how to properly deploy and this, manage this thing, like they didn't know. <laughs> so I'm like digging through piles of puppet scripts, trying to help them debug the process and get it all running properly. Uh, all, all the while, you know, burning up consulting hours like crazy. So that was, that was interesting. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you built things out in cloud formation. So now you have your infrastructure as code. And you also had your application code, I'm assuming, and, and, and being stored as well. Were you storing those two things together in a single giant mono repository? Or were you segmenting out the, the infrastructure as code and the application code in their own repositories? Yeah, we, we started with a mono repository, mainly because we only had two to three customers there. So splitting them up seemed like a big move. Um, already so mm -hmm. we put everything into a mono repository uh, everybody thinks they're google right <laughs> so <laughs> let's make a big mono repository um, yeah that that's what we did um, which worked quite well because you have this one code base and you know where to look it's easy to find uh, everything you need for deployment and also customer configuration you talked about the application code yeah it was a vendor vendor based uh, content management system but we also had like plugins. Mm. I think they were called extensions. So we everything was in the mono repository. Was did you change that model? Yeah, we are skilled engineers. Yeah, but a mono repository is hard to to get right if you don't have the automatic checks and pipelines and so on. I think, and we didn't had had have that. Uh, we have had to move fast, so we didn't have the automatic checks. And then everything looks the same. For example, the, the customer configuration, it's, it's was already a JSON file, which is, which is cool if you have, uh, infrastructure as code, uh, configuration as code, but uh, the structure is always the same. So if you get a pull request for changing the easy to instance configuration for one customer, then it looks the same. We for like the other customers, there's just one little, little thing in the path, like the name of the customer, which mm. is different. And we we had occasions where we reviewed a uh, a merge request. We were on GitLab, uh, and then the problem was, yeah, merge request looks fine, but not for this customer, and oh. merged it into the wrong customer. <laughs> then something happened uh, down the line. The production had to uh, had to redeploy, and then there were some some little outages there. And then, oh yes, <laughs> wrong customer deployment. <laughs> I see. So you were not only managing your infrastructure and the application, like the plugins as part of one repository, you had all of your customers as, were they like different branches or tags in that same repository? I don't know what the proper verbiage is for GitLab because I mostly work on GitHub. Yeah, there, there are branches there, but the customer configuration were in different folders of the mono repository. And 
Yeah, and for the for the clusters, we used an anti-pattern. I now know, know this is an anti-pattern. We used the anti-pattern where we had the development branch deploys to development and uh, it was called master branch. Uh, at the time, I think now it's called main. Mm -hmm. It deploys to uh, test and production branch deploys to production. And then you merge from development to master to production. <laughs> Okay. But and that's branch-based. So if you want to fix something in production fast, you have to go development master production. It's very, very tedious to, to do it. We noticed that it's tedious, but we didn't know that it's an anti-pattern until later. What, what made it an anti-pattern for you? Because I've heard both sides of the argument here where some people really like this sort of branch-based uh, to environment deployment. And other folks saying, no, 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 that's an anti-pattern. Don't do it. So, so what in your mind was was wrong about doing it that way? I think it's it comes from the original Git flow, which is supposed to have uh, different branches for the production. So you have production one, production two, and so on, and you merge there, and then it gets deployed. I think, but um, we later changed to GitLab Git flow, which is a easy, easier branch model, I think, and. Um, what's in the book infrastructures code which i can really recommend this book it says okay your infrastructure should be some kind of thing you can deploy everywhere and only the configuration changes and the configuration says okay deploy it there on a specific aws virtual private cloud or network or so on so so the configuration decides where to put it and not the branch so you're tying the branch with the with the infrastructure but the infrastructure doesn't care, <laughs> basically. Just knows what, what it should build, and that's it. Hmm. So in your repo structure, did you, did you treat artifacts like configuration, actual code, and secret? Did you treat all of that differently? Uh, in the monorepo? Yeah, how, in... did you, how did you store those, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, we had them all in the in the mono repository, even, even secrets, even secrets, even okay, even secrets, but not in plain text. <laughs> God forbid. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we used something like uh, SOPs. Um, at that time, we were storing them even in AWS, the secrets manager. So okay. everything was a file, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and I'm just I'm trying to think about how the the updated pattern works. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did to update your pattern to get away from the mono repo? Yeah, that, that was a kind of a long ongoing thing, like over a year or so. So we noticed mono repo doesn't scale for a lot of customers. We were getting even more customers and with six to, to, to 10 customers, it's nearly impossible to, to scale up mono repository without the, all the automated checks. So we noticed that the anti-pattern, okay, we had these uh, branches there which deployed to different environments. And then we said, okay, we have to break out the infrastructure into a separate repository. And we already moved to Docker. So we containerized our application, but we were all were on the uh, on EC2 instances still. And then we noticed, okay, we have this configuration, we have the Docker containers, we have the infrastructure, and we also have the extensions. Don't, don't forget the extensions. And then we thought, okay, this seems like all artifacts we have to put into different re repositories. And that's how we moved on 
So strip everything out of the mono repository till only the infrastructure lives lives in one repository and all the other things like extensions, Docker containers, and the configuration for for the customers so, are in separate so not, repositories. Okay. It wasn't broken out like per customer or per environment even. It was uh, more like functions of the artifacts. You broke them out into different repos along those lines. Yeah. So for example, the, the Docker container for the application, um, we, we broke that out and made it configurable over environment variables for different customers. Like not all the, the customers have the same extensions. So if you start the application, you have to mount them in with a volume, for example. And then we had the, the extensions were deployed to Artifactory because that's where you have to deploy all your artifacts and also the Docker containers. And then we had a separate customer repository where there was just a JSON file. And it said, mm -hmm. okay, you have these plugins and, the cust and then you, kn you knew what to mount into the volume of the Docker container. Okay, so you've broken apart what all these things that were contained together for a while yeah. in a single repository. You've now broken them into separate repositories, which I guess is good from a maintenance perspective. You can just, you know, if you want someone who maintains the infrastructure, they can just give them permissions to the infrastructure repo and not give them permissions to the Docker repository because they don't need to update that. That's not part of their job, you know, as you're scaling out. Uh, but then you need something that can orchestrate the deployment using all these different repositories. So where did that orchestration layer live? Yeah, it's a little bit like with microservices. Yeah, you get the the, the general deployment and the maintenance gets easier for each uh, each microservice. But now you have a, a zoo of 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 repositories basically. So <laughs> you have twenty repositories for your customers. You have uh, one repository infrastructure and uh, for Docker containers. Sometimes you have more Docker containers. So every Docker container gets their own repository. And what we we used already said we used GitLab, so mm -hmm. we used a relatively new and uh, at that time undocumented feature. <laughs> found out, <laughs> um, like uh, tying together everything with with pipelines. So okay. they have this nice feature of of child pipelines. So and what what's really cool about GitLab, uh, I have to say, is if you trigger a pipeline with an API, so we had a bunch of shell scripts from the customers. So the customers said, okay, I have a new configuration. Um, the configuration changed. Let's trigger a pipeline in the infrastructure uh, repository. And what GitLab does is, okay, I trigger this over a shell script via the API of GitLab, and then it knows, okay, the other repository triggered it. So you can follow the pipelines so there's a pipeline in the customer repository. Then uh, it triggers a pipeline infrastructure repository, and then you can follow the trail so from the customer repository and can really see, uh, trace how that flows into production. I see. So in the case that the customer made an update, you would make that update in the customer's repository and commit it, and then that would trigger uh, a change in GitLab pipelines that would then trigger the rest of the pipelines to do what they need to do to make the update to the actual environment. Yes, that's that's how it's done. And if you have a Docker update, for example, it's which is not really a configuration change, but um, more or less like if it's a security update, we had to do security updates within 48 hours. Then these also trigger a merge request in the custom repository. So when the Docker, Docker image or container is in Artifactory, then the pipeline of the Docker container says, "Hey, I have a new, I have a new um, version of me 
in the custom repository and you can say um, go over all the repositories in the customer customer group and trigger a configuration change so you have a bunch i have 20 merge requests overnight where it says yeah we have a new docker container and it fixes this issue we're taking a short break from the podcast to tell you about sponsor collide k-o-l-i-d-e Collide is an endpoint security solution, and they use a resource that most of us in IT would never really think about, the end users, because end users are where problems start, right? Not solutions. Well, Collide challenges that thinking, because if you can leverage your end users to mitigate the security issues that they are carrying around in their backpacks, that is a huge win. Now, let's say you're doing your device management the traditional way with an MDM. Well, you know the joy of loading agents onto employee devices. Agents impact performance, and they can be a privacy horror show, privacy being a thing all your users know about now. So Collide does things differently. Instead of forcing changes on your users, Collide notifies folks via Slack when their devices are insecure, and then provides step-by-step instructions on how to solve the problem. And using this Collide approach, the interaction feels, feels more friendly, more educational, more inclusive, and less intrusive, because... Now IT isn't doing something to your device. Instead, you're working with IT to help keep the company secure. It's the whole attitude of, we're all in this together. And as IT, you still get the views you need into the managed device fleet. Collide provides a single dashboard that lets you monitor the security of everything, whether the endpoints are running on Mac, Windows, or Linux, so you can easily demonstrate compliance to your auditors, customers, and the C-suite. Give Collide a shot to meet your compliance goals by putting users first. Visit collide.com slash day2cloud to find out how. And if you visit collide.com slash day2cloud, they're going to send you a goodie bag, including a t-shirt just for activating a free trial. That is K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day2cloud. And now back to today's episode. Okay, so that's really efficient in that scenario where there's a security issue or something, and that will cause the need to publish a new version of the Docker image. You can update all the impacted customers through a single merge and then you know a, a trigger of the pipeline. That's huh, I like that. So was each pipeline definition stored in the repository associated with it? So was there like a pipeline definition in the infrastructure repository and another pipeline definition in the customer repository, et cetera? Is that kind of how it was tied together? Yeah, that's how it's done. Um, (laughs) It means like you're duplicating a lot of uh, pipeline definitions. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like that. But there's this nice feature of GitLab CI where you can say include some pipelines from another repository. So we had basically a repository which stored a master pipeline, and you can include this master pipeline into into a custom repository. And you can even say, okay, I want to remove or replace or configure step in that master pipeline differently for that customer. So if you have a customer which needs a lot more in its more EC2 instances in its cluster, then you can say, okay, um, do something different here in the pipeline. Right, right. And that would be a different, like, say, count argument for the infrastructure pipeline, you know, yeah. 10 instances instead of five for this particular customer. And yeah. you can keep that all in the customer configuration. That's not something that goes in the infrastructure repo because that's just supposed to be the the abstracted way that infrastructure is rolled out. Yeah, we had this, uh, not, not a little bit abstract, but we had this kind of packages because we had to sell something, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And there was a package like for basic, premium, and custom. And they were in the infrastructure, so uh, infrastructure repository. Okay. So, but and, you can and... override this with, with parameters, for example. So if this customer needed a lot more uh, easy to instances with a higher uh, throughput or more memory, then you can say, okay, I overwrite this configuration in the pipeline. So you would I provide see. the parameters over the customer pipeline. So you could you could either say it's a you know a premium account or a basic account, and that meant something to the infrastructure yeah. on what to deploy, or a custom where you could change a few details if it was going to be a special customer that was needed something outside of the regular packages. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Now, in terms, you mentioned testing a few times, and I'm trying to think through. Like, I'm kind of aware of what testing generally happens on the application side. But I'm curious what testing you put in place on the infrastructure repo when new code was checked in there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. We always <laughs> wanted to implement something like uh, like um, there's a Terraform module which checks the state of AWS to, uh, against your re repository, but we wouldn't uh, have time to implement that, unfortunately. Okay. But what we had in place was if there was a merge request, we could spin up in our development AWS account because we had two, one for production and one for development. If there's a feature branch in, in one repository, we could spin up uh, a cluster, development cluster. We had we had some kind of repo which was called test customer and mm. could spin up a cluster there to see how, how it behaves. Okay, so you could do a little bit of functional testing before you accepted that that merge request and, yeah. and then that that would now be the the official version of the infrastructure you're deploying out yeah okay i think i think i got that you, you've mentioned a book a few times um and for for folks that are listening can you just tell us what what the actual title of the book is uh if they wanted to go find it it's easy uh infrastructure is code that's it's wrote by someone, which I always uh, say it's Keith Richards, but I think that's a guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I recently read one that was, uh, I think it was by Rosemary Wang. I don't know if it was that, if that's no, the no, one you're talking no, about. Not, this is a different one. one. Okay. All right, then we will have it to go, It doesn't go too much into detail about the techniques used, but more like an, a broad overview of infrastructure as code and the patterns and anti-patterns uh, section is, is really, really good. Where as I read, oh, my colleague who ma mainly built uh, the whole infrastructure and the, the repository structure did a lot of things right there intuitively without, without reading the book. And then I validated the patterns and anti-patterns and noticed, okay, deploying over branches into environments, different environments is tricky. Gotcha. Yeah, it's an O'Reilly book. I just found it. It's yeah. called Infrastructure as Code by Keith Morris. So we'll yeah, Keith Morris. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, if anybody wants to do additional reading, uh, I've been working through the the book from Rosemary Wang. She works for HashiCorp, um, but it's not like a Terraform only book. It's more abstract, like you were saying, and just general practices and recommendations on implementing it. And I I forget who that's. I think it's Manning publishes that, uh, but you, you, know, you can get it wherever. So those are two really solid books. If you're trying to figure out how you're managing your infrastructure as code, um, especially if you come from, I think one of those is more targeted towards developers uh, and the other one's more targeted towards ops. I, I don't know if that was uh, 
at least the infrastructure's code that I read book, that one was targeted more towards operations folks who might not have a big software development background. Did you feel that the O'Reilly book was more targeted at people with a development background? I'm not sure. It's it's been a long time since I since I had that book in my in my hand. I could understand it extremely well as a developer. I'm coming from the development side. I'm not not an ops guy. Okay. Well, I say read them both because that's what DevOps is all about, right? <laughs> we get the developer perspective and the operations perspective and merge the two together. Yeah, that's that that that's the point. We were a little bit lacking our team, so getting the operations <laughs> to work with the developers. Right. Uh, but I had a few conversations with operations people, uh, internal conferences, and uh, the perspective from ops is very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about automating all the stuff, like it's uh, said in all the conferences, automate all the stuff in DevOps. And they said, yeah, if you're doing something one or two times a year, why bother automating it if it takes two hours? There's there's no use in automating everything. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that said, but in... um. In regards to that, I've done a lot of disaster recovery projects where it is something you only do once or twice a year, but you never remember exactly how to do it. And mm-hmm. so having that scripted out for you is actually a huge time saver. And, and in a situation like disaster recovery, where there's a lot of pressure on you, not having to remember the exact steps is is also kind of nice. <laughs> I think he meant that really with a pipeline. So. Mm spending a lot of time automating things you can do manually very, very fast. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a balancing act when it comes to automation, for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious what, we, we talked about some of the tools that you're using. You said GitLab and you're using CloudFormation uh, for a while. Is that what you've land, you landed on uh, or at least the, stat, the state of things when you left or had you had you moved on to other tool sets before you left the organization? Yeah, so as we said, uh, cloud formation is a little bit tricky to get multi-cluster deployments, right? Mm-hmm. And you had had an episode about ter- how Terraform sucks. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, and I would say Terraform is awesome. I've used it since 0.13.1 or so. Okay. Then it had some uh, some bugs there where you, if you stop the pipeline when it was deploying, then the state got all messed up. Terraform, <laughs> then yeah. you basically, oh, I have two load balances for the same cluster. Hmm, this, mm. this shouldn't be uh, doing. And then you had to clean up the state manually. But uh, with uh, one one zero with production readiness, uh, Terraform really stepped up their game. And we hadn't had any problem with Terraform ever. So even if the state got messed up, it somehow recovered with the next pipeline run. It was amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely been some some big improvements in 1.0 and newer on how it deals with, hey, your environment doesn't look like state. Let me try to figure out what you want to do here. Uh, and it yeah. usually does the right thing. At least yeah. it tells you what it's going to do first. Yeah, we, we, after two rewrites of the of our infrastructure code, we were quite content with the with the result there. And it, it didn't change for two years. That That's, that's the fun thing. So I, I left uh, and it was still in place and everybody was happy. And... We we really didn't trust at the beginning because a lot of pipelines failed and deployments failed. And after a while, we said, okay, this works fine. Let's do auto-updates on every night. Hmm. It, it didn't didn't fail us. It just ran. And then it is really, it really is the saying, if you do it often and then you get the confidence that it works, then you just let it run and 
we didn't have to bother, bother with security updates anymore. Gotcha. Yeah, it's building that initial trust of the automation. Yeah. Like, I'm not ready to go full-blown autopilot yet, but you get there after a while. Um, now, you mentioned you left and went to go work for an actual startup uh, called Ask UI. So uh, let's shift the conversation a little bit. Uh, tell us why you decided to make the switch in the first place. So DevOps is cool and all. Um, <laughs> but, uh, as you might have noticed, I'm a, a very talkative person. So talk, talking at conferences and writing content is uh, really dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that in a DevOps team. Uh, we were a really tight-knit uh, tight team there, and there were really great engineers, a, lo a lot of them smarter than, than me, and I could learn a lot of them. But I couldn't live out my, my passion for content and talking, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> and then I got interested in, de in developer relations, which is kind of a new field. It gets formalized a lot in the last, last two years, I would say. And thought, oh, this would be a great fit because I have a broad overview of a lot of things. I'm more of a generalist. Uh, I, I like to understand companies and customers and talk to them and, and, and feel their pain and, and, and ease their pain. And uh, then someone from a startup came around, my, my CEO, and uh, just got me at the right time, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> So are you, you like talking and you know being in front of people, sharing information and all of that? Are you more of an extrovert or an introvert? Yeah, there's, there's this so-called term uh, ambivert. So I like to work alone and be alone. That's that's totally fine. But uh, I also get energy from from talking to people and huh. yeah, sh yeah, sharing really, knowledge. That, that you really are an me. odd duck then. Because a lot of introverts may like to teach, uh, let's say, share their knowledge, talk about the topics that are very interesting to them, but but it does get exhausting and they need their time away. They're not energized by by that necessarily. Uh, you sound like, yeah, you really are in the middle. I think, you, how did you put it? Not not ambidextrous, whatever, amber word you said. Amber word. Amber usually, But that's usually how, how a lot of people are. I know introverts, um, which are extremely great at public talking. A colleague of mine is, is really good at public talking, but he yeah. needs his time off afterwards. Yeah. That that's definitely me. I, I if I get up to to do a talk and uh, I am so done by the time it's over, it's like I got enough energy to get through the talk and then uh, stand down and uh, deal with the questions because no one wants to answer ask questions during the talk. Why would you do that so everyone can benefit? They got to ask them one on one at the end because <laughs> they're introverts too, honestly. And uh, then it's then I got enough energy to get that done, and that's it. I am I am just I'm peace out. I'm so exhausted. But so, what kind of topics are you focusing on in in your new role? Is it primarily talking about the company and the crazy development technologies, or are you expanding out to other areas in terms of what you're presenting on and the content you're creating? Yeah, it's totally different now. I'm, I talk about test automation a lot because we're developing a test automation. Yeah, you can use it for test automation. Let's say let's let's say an user interface, graphical user interface automation tool. Mm. My current startup. I'm not into machine learning or artificial intelligence. Uh, that's that's not my thing. <laughs> so I don't know a lot about the the underlying technique. I at least I know uh, in out. <laughs> that's what I get <laughs> if you take something wrong or or your models are uh, are not not good. Then uh, usually nothing comes good. Uh, nothing good comes out of them. So I, I focus more on the user experience side. That's what a developer advocate does usually. So I, I analyze all the, the ways uh, a user interacts with our product. 
So, and this is not only the the documentation or the SDK, but also the the Twitter, social media, Discord community. There's a lot of community work because uh, community is, is key to to every product. You see that in all the the new shiny products that they usually have a big community around them, which help uh, help uh, out each other. So you you can't uh, can't uh, do the support with 15 to 20 people, which you need to scale. So you have to have a community which help each other out. That's a very different skill set than like developing software. You know, when I think yeah. of when I think of someone who's developing software, a very analytical, focused mind. You know, not so much worried about external folks talking to them. But now you're you're moving to a realm where you do you have to empathize and sympathize with users and understand their problems. Did you find that a, a difficult transition? I have to disagree with with you there. I don't think uh, development is is a secluded uh, field anymore. So we're developing, we were developing a cost content management system. So I had to talk to customers what they want out of it. And then I have to, had uh, all the platform was built on, on giants, I would say. So we had platforms for, for uh, GitLab CI pipelines, then the API gateway, also GitLab runner, for example. Then I already had to talk to a lot of people to get that, to get that work so feedback was already the the thing we we did there so talk, talking to people was was always important to to get anything done so that's so so, so that skill set you're saying is not you mean everybody really needs this skill set i think to succeed even in a big corporation which is very processes are formalized you you need to have the the human connection there so the best teams were those who took the feedback you gave them and made something out of it. And you could talk to them and say, hey, I need need a service to do something different here for me to work. And if if you can empathize with those and say, hey, I can even help you make that better, for example, inner source, then you can can win them over. And the, I think that takes a lot of empathy. Yeah, we've talked about those as, as soft skills uh, historically, but I think they some of the terminology has been changing to uh, to business skills would be a different different oh, way to look at a, it, communication skills. Uh, and I think you you really seem to own that. Like it's you know, a very important skill everybody's got to have. And I, I I can't disagree with that. In that the most successful projects that I've been a part of over time have been when it, it's not just everybody got in a conference room and talked and different groups shared their interests commonly. And so we had a, it wasn't just that. It was also a lot of one-on-one where maybe I'd be trying to figure out why we needed to set up security a particular way for this application. I'd go sit with a developer or a few developers and go, okay, we need to set it up like this is what you've requested, but that doesn't make any sense for these reasons. Let's have a dialogue and get into the details of what's going on here. And and, and I'd be like, I'm not attacking you. This isn't like, yes, you sent me a help desk request and usually you just expect it to be fulfilled with no questions. I'm not trying to be confrontational. I just want to put the best result out the door for the application for the business. Once that trust and the connection was there, the product, the end result of what got assembled was was better, uh, and and it meant things going forward it was like, oh, we can talk to we can talk to Ethan. He's not going to bite our heads off. We can trust that guy. He's got uh, everybody's best interests in mind. But you had to have that initial conversation and get over those conflicts initially. So often there's that tension there between a dev and an ops team, for example. 
Um, so I, I agree with you, Johannes, that, uh, yeah, that human connection is, is massive. It's a huge boon to success of IT projects and app deployment. Now, since you are a developer advocate, I think it's probably only fair if we actually ask you what uh, Ask UI does. <laughs> yeah, that we're figuring out that at the moment. <laughs> it's like in a startup, uh, you're, you, you want to have your, your niche, your market fit. But basically, we are automating uh, user interfaces, graphically user interfaces. And um, when you think of automating or test automation in for graphical user interfaces, you think like frame about frameworks like Cypress or Selenium. So everybody knows Selenium. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what we do initially, and that, that's it's hard to tell uh, or to describe. You have it's better to see it, but we can't can't do that now. <laughs> so I, I will I will try it. Um, so Cypress or Selenium, everything is based on the structure of the HTML. So the resulting DOM in the in the web browser. So how do you find elements? You do something like XPath or CSS selectors. But that's not what we're doing. We are looking at the graphical user interface like a human would. So mm. we have a set of models trained to recognize buttons, text fields, navbars, text, and icons. And then we have an SDK who can use this information and automate um, automate the user interaction, like real keystrokes, moving the mouse. It's not like the mouse jumping around from one point to, to another element, but it really moves the mouse like a real user would. Hmm. And, and that that's that's the change. And usually if, if someone sees a demo of it, it says, woo, I have never seen that before. And that, that was my impression when, when my CEO approached me <laughs> and I said, whoa, this is a really cool tool. But because it's really, really hard to train a model that can recognize consistently the, the different elements. And while using the product now, I really see a lot of problems with, uh, with accessibility. So mm. the, the artificial engineering models say, okay, this is a text field. But in reality, it's a button. And then you say, yeah, I know this is a button. But the problem is, you know that of context. So there's a button left and there's a button right. So probably the element in the middle will be also a button. But if you look at it from a visual standpoint of view, it looks like a text field. And then our artificial our model says, yeah, that's a text field. Interesting. So to a certain degree, like the model is telling you some of the gaps in your UI design because it's trying to interpret what it sees <clears throat> and it's getting the interpretation wrong, which could be a fault with the model, but could also just be a problem with the way that your page or your user interface is designed. Yeah, we noticed that in the last two weeks, okay, this has some kind of accessibility usefulness here. Because if you have a text field where the text or the placeholder label doesn't get recognized or that the bound bounding boxes which are usually uh, around text fields and their the contrast is too low then visually impaired uh, people and i count <laughs> myself a little bit <laughs> to it already because i i feel like old and my eyes get uh, get uh, sore and 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 worse <laughs> every year i think then missing contrast is a really big problem and it's a problem for our model too so it usually indicates okay there's there's some kind of problem so it's a it's a very hard space to to uh, really hard problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Well, I've certainly seen my fair share of terrible UI. So hopefully, <laughs> folks can help help out with that a little bit. Cool. 
Well, Johannes, this has been a very interesting conversation and a little bit far ranging. Um, if folks want to know more about you and learn more about the content that you create, what are some good places they should go and check? I'm usually on Twitter. You can find me usually everywhere with at Johannes Dienst. I have a quite unique name, it seems. <laughs> so I didn't have any initials there. So well, that's lucky then. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, Johannes, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And hey, listeners, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. We both monitor that account. Or you can fill out the form on the Day2Cloud website. That's day2cloud.io. Go there. There's a form. You can fill it out and tell us what you want to hear about because we are open and welcoming of feedback. If you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 